Chris Ash, he's the first casualty of the 2019 season. Ohio State is rolling. Clemson winning not impressively. The Pac-12 continues their fall. All that as we roll into week six of the college football season, approaching that halfway mark. Andrew Doughty here on the High Motor Podcast, the midweek episode of the High Motor Podcast. It will be Brett McMurphy on this week's episode, and then the regular Chase Katie talking bets for week six, best bets, his stay aways, and more. This is the High Motor Podcast. This is week six. This is college football. Big thanks to Brett McMurphy for chatting on this week's show. And Brett, I want to start here with something that just dropped on Sunday. I want to start with the Rutgers dismissal uh, dismissal of Chris Ash. He's out after 40 games as head coach, only eight wins in those three-plus seasons at Rutgers. And I know we're really early here, but any idea from your end on who Rutgers could be targeting? And just generally, what are your expectations for this search, their second search in not quite even four years here? Yeah, well, you know, I was actually, um, sources had told me, that their board of trustees had met actually two weeks ago and basically signed off on the, on getting rid of Chris Ash. They had okayed all the financials and all those other details. Um, so it was basically, it was just a matter of time when it was going to happen. And then the, the huge shutout loss to Michigan 16th time in 29 big 10 games under Ash that they've scored less than a touchdown. Um, so it wasn't a matter of if the matter of when, and obviously that came down, on Sunday, uh, obviously the the obvious choice uh, is is Greg Schiano. I mean, he did great things there at Rutgers when they were in the Big East. He, they were a laughing stock before he took over. He made them into not only one of the best teams in the Big East, but also a national contender. Um, got them nationally ranked. Uh, got them a lot of notoriety. The question that nobody really knows is: Does Schiano want to return to Rutgers? You know, he was with the Patriots before the season. Um, and then left the Patriots um, for what appears to be family reasons. You know, obviously, you know, you're well aware what, what went down at Tennessee, where he basically had the job until the, the pressure of of uh, the, the, the Vols fan base and or social media and or Philip Fulmer <laughs> and or fill in the blank, uh, you know, derailed that. So he is the obvious number one choice there. If he doesn't want that job, and I'm told if he – if he does want it, that it's going to be hard for Rutgers not to hire him. I'm told that they do want somebody with head coaching experience. That was something that Chris Ash didn't have. That was something that Kyle Flood before Chris Ash did not have. So they want somebody with head coaching experience. If it's not Greg Schiano, um, some people you could look at. Uh, Butch Jones was actually a grad assistant at Rutgers under former coach Doug Graber. He's currently a analyst uh, at uh, working with Nick Saban at Alabama. He could be a possibility. Um, you've got people like Lance Leopold at Buffalo, who has ex- who has uh, you know ties to the to the Jersey area and that part of the country. Um, and you know after after that, I think it's really wide open. Um, I, I think they would prefer somebody that has ties to the Northeast, specifically Jersey. Um, but I think what's more um, more important for them is to get somebody with head coaching experience. I don't think it's likely you would see any Power 5 coach, uh, current Power 5 head coach, leave to go to Rutgers um, just because of how difficult a job that is. You're competing in the Big Ten East with all the heavyweights in the Big Ten. Um, and I, I don't know, quite frankly, if there's anybody at the Group 5 level that really uh, – you know, is attractive enough for Rutgers. So 
if they don't get Shiano, it's going to be fascinating to see what direction they go in. And you kind of already answered my next question a little bit, but do you get the feeling that, that they're going to take a shot? And I know that I don't, I have no, absolutely no insight on this, but I know a lot of people maybe throw like Joe Moorhead's name out there because of his ties to the region. Like you said, you don't see any Power 5 coach going there, but do you get the feeling that if Rutgers wants and doesn't get Shiano, for example, that they are really willing to invest heavily and take a shot on somebody big? Well, yeah, I mean, they can take a shot, but again, if you're if you're Joe Moorhead, um, and obviously, you know, you're right, he, he has a lot of ties to the Northeast. Um, you know, again, I'm I'm sure Mississippi State's going to pay more than Rutgers. And do you want to bail Mississippi State after two years? Um, Now, you know, obviously money is going to be pretty much the same um, for most of these guys wherever they go. The question is, you know, what's what's more difficult, to be in the SEC West or to be in the Big Ten East? Um, You know, at least Mississippi State under Dan Mullen showed that they could compete. I mean, heck, they were the first team – um, you know, going back to 2014, they were the, the first number one ranked team in the in the initial college football playoff rankings back in 2014. Um, so they've proven that that they can compete at that level. It's not easy at e- at either place, but yeah, if I'm Rutgers, absolutely, I I, I make a run at everybody, um, make them tell you no, and then try to move on. But uh, you know, Moorhead would be would be uh, you know I think a great hire if they could get him. I'm not so sure if he wouldn't want to leave the SEC um, for the Big Ten. But again, a lot of these guys, it's when they make these moves, it's it's more nowadays for personal reasons as uh, compared to like 10 years ago where there was a big difference in money at different places. The money's pretty much the same. I mean, it may be a little bit different, but it's more, I think, personal choice. Um, but yeah, obviously, you know, Moorhead would be a, a tremendous get if Rutgers, if Rutgers could end up with him. Brett, another coaching thing for you here. So after the Washington State blowout, I'm sure you've seen this. I'm sure you've heard it. The Washington State blowout uh, at Utah one week after the UCLA debacle up in Pullman. Mike Leach called his players, I don't have the direct quote right here, but entitled, fat, dumb, along those lines in that post-game press conference. Do you have an issue with coaches doing that in the public forum? I I understand why people do, but I actually have no problem with it. And the reason is what he's saying to the public is probably nothing that he's already told these guys to their face. And also, I think a big problem I have with the people that criticize coaches for saying stuff like this is these are probably the same people who complain about coaches who won't answer questions, who just give us coach speak, who won't be honest in their assessment of teams or players or games or whatever. So now you've got a guy that's brutally honest, and some people are like, oh, I can't believe he said this about these, these poor student athletes, you know, come on, give me a break. I mean, these guys have heard a hundred times worse. And also you're playing for Mike Leach. You know, you're probably almost expecting this type of type of reaction. Um, and bottom line is let's, let's see how they react to it. Um, you know, I, I may have had a, a bigger problem if he would have called out a specific player, but when he calls out the entire team, again, this isn't anything that the team hasn't heard before and again, with Mike Leach, um, you know, I don't think it's a big surprise. You know, one one danger in doing this is, you know, how many coaches, opposing coaches, will they use this? You know, believe me, they use everything in recruiting these days. How many people use this in recruiting? To, well, do you want to play for a guy that calls you out? You know, I think some guys may actually, um, you know, like the honesty of the coach 
um, to come out and, and call them out like this. Um, but, you know, we'll have to see. But, you know, I don't, you know, I haven't taken a Twitter poll on if people are for or against Leach saying that, but I may be in the minority in it, but I have, I have no issues with him doing it. So you said, other people have said this too, hey, it's Mike Leach, it's not all that surprising. Do you think that, that some coaches can kind of get away with it? And by getting away with it, I, I mean, you know, the media, fans, others react to that type of talk differently, um, whereas maybe some other coaches, it might react differently. Does that question make sense? Well, you mean, the re- I think the reaction from from the media or fan bases, if another coach said that, yeah, I think, it. you know, Nick Saban can pretty much say whatever he wants. And he's, you know... Not that he's not going to get criticized, but people will give him more leeway. And and obviously Saban has not used those words before, but Saban will come out and I'm not going to say blast his team, but he will criticize his team in a way. He does it perfectly because he criticizes the media for the way that they, you know, that they, the rap poison don't, don't get caught, you know, believe in the rap poison. He uses the media to basically blast the media by trying to get a point across to his team. So Saban does, again, he's not calling them names like that, but he does the same thing in a different way. Um, and people don't have a problem with it because it's like, well, he's blasting the media for writing these, these great articles about his team or for criticizing his team or whatever the case may be. Um, so yeah, it's kind of similar to being for coaches that are on the hot seat. And I, I, before this season, I talked to Elaine Kiffin about this, about Clay Helton. Obviously, uh, Kiffin was at USC. But I said, once you're on the so-called proverbial hot seat, you know, whenever that, that perception is out there, what's a challenge for someone specifically like Clay Helton? And he brought up a great point. He said, look, Brett, when that happens, he goes, whenever anything goes wrong, the fan base is ready to jump on the negative. They're ready to, to, to pound you. They're ready to, to blame you. If you're not on the hot seat, though, and something goes wrong, then those same fans, you know what? They won't blame the coach. They'll actually blame the players. They'll say, oh, you know, uh, you know, Joe Smith didn't make the catch or he didn't make the right throw or whatever and kind of move on. If the coach is on the hot seat, it's, man, you know, forget that the kid, you know, Jeremy Pruitt at Tennessee, forget that the kid blew the coverage in the BYU game. It's like Jeremy Pruitt can't coach. Why are we losing to – to BYU. So I think that's kind of similar to your question about how people react differently um, when coaches respond. If, if you're a favorable coach, if you're in a good position, if you had success, people are going to look at it differently as if it's, uh, you know, let's, let's first say, for, say, for instance, Chris, a- Chris Ash would have made those comments. How do you think the reaction would have been compared to Mike Leach making those comments? Totally, I think it'd be a 180-degree difference. Let's change gears here. So Nebraska got a lot of buzz entering the season. Year two for Scott Frost, year two for Adrian Martinez, and the, the results haven't quite matched the buzz depending on what your expectations were for Nebraska going into the season. So let me ask you, after that Ohio State blowout, how far away do you think Nebraska is from really being that annual Big Ten title contender who might flirt with the playoff every few years? Yeah, I think I think they've still got a long way to go. Um, I think it's unfair that all the expectations were heaped on Nebraska this early, and you know it was it was easy to do it. Um, you know, and look at what Scott Frost did in year two at UCF. He's in year two um, in Nebraska, and last year, you know, after the after the Owen uh, six start, they they finished so strong. Um, you know, four out of wins in their last six games, and then the the close losses to Ohio State. In Iowa, um, but then you look at you know 
you look at the coaches who have been hired um, in 2018, if I said to you, Scott Frost, Willie Taggart, and Jeremy Pruitt, and uh, I think majority of people would say, wow, you know, Scott Frost, I really like what he's doing. Uh, but actually, their, their records against FBS schools are fairly, fair, fairly similar. Pruitt's 4-10, and 10, Frost is 6-10, and 10, and Taggart's actually 7-9. and nine. And I know the perception of those three guys are totally different right now with their fan bases. And I'm not saying that to dog Scott Frost in any way. I just think they've got a long way to go. And certainly, you know, the Ohio State game gave us an indication of, of maybe how far Nebraska has to go. The odds before the season for Nebraska to win the national championship, the odds for Adrian Martinez to win the Heisman, were totally out of whack. You had some time, At some point in the preseason, you had Nebraska in like the top 10 odds to win the national title. Um, you, maybe there's a lot of, you know, Cornhuskers that, that went to Vegas and put that a lot of money, and that's why the numbers got dropped that low. But there's no way Nebraska should have been a top 10 team. And that's basically saying that Nebraska was a top 10 team entering the season i don't think they were um i think they'll get there with frost he's a gr- he's a he's a great coach he's got ties to the school um so he will be afforded every opportunity um as an alum of the school but uh but yeah i think they're a few years off and and uh you know just the fact that you're asking me well will they make a playoff appearance or two if you're talking about college football playoff i mean that that's going to be tough because there's you know, we've had five years of the playoff, and there's only really there's only been ten ten teams that have qualified for the playoffs. So they got to win the Big Ten first before they can start even uh, considering getting in the playoff. And Nebraska sitting at three and two after that Colorado loss, after that Ohio State loss, like we mentioned. Now Ohio State, something I want to ask you. I haven't talked to you since uh, this happened a couple of year, about a year and a half ago. Ohio State now uh, what thirteen, fourteen months removed from that Urban Meyer suspension, uh, prompted by your story. And I'm curious, Brett, do do people, and you can put whoever you want in people, media, coaches, players, etc., whoever, do people act differently around you or treat you differently since that Ohio State story came out last year? You know, nobody treats me differently. I think the biggest difference is, um, it, it even happened a few months ago, is that when I see, co- you know, when you see coaches in person, I mean, you can text them all you want, but you see see coaches in person, you have some time to spend FaceTime with them. Um I can't tell you how many coaches reached out to me when I was reporting that and after I was reporting that and even a few months ago saying, man, I really, I really admired the work you did with that. That's, that's, that was impressive. Um, you know, you're, you're some, some actually thought I was being bullied by, by urban in the press conference at big 10 media day when he's saying, I don't know, would create a story like this. And I really didn't look at it that way. Uh, but I've had a, a ton of coaches reach out to me, you know, in the past uh, 13, 14 months and basically say, you know, that was a good job. I can't share with you, but some gave me their own personal stories and uh, with urban. And uh, there's needless to say, there's not a lot of uh, current coaches that are big fans of his. Um, So yeah, it was fine. As far as media, when it happened, you know, I was in between uh, being laid off at ESPN and before I had started at with stadium network. And I had a ton of people that I worked with at ESPN reach out to me, say, Hey, congrats. Great job. Good. You know, you uh, congrats on kicking our ass. <laughs> Keep it going. Uh, e- even one sports center anchor, I, I don't want to name him, but he even reached out to me because I was still between jobs and he didn't know 
that I that I would had a job lined up when my ESPN deal ended, and even offered to um, ask me if I needed help financially to to continue reporting the story. And here I am competing against ESPN, and here's the sports center anchor saying, "Hey, if you need any money to travel or kind of report this, let me know. I'll help you out however I can." And I was just I was blown away by that. So yeah, that that stuff was really cool. Uh, the negative is the the Ohio State reaction, the fans. Um, I basically don't get on Facebook anymore because I've literally stopped counting. But I had, you know, over 2,000, maybe 3,000 personal messages from Ohio State fans that were either all profanity threats to me, my wife, my my uh, 15-year-old daughter, um, just sick stuff. I mean, it's it's one thing to say, you know, I vote in the AP poll and I, I put my my AP ballot out. I put my bowl projections out each week and people say, you're an idiot. And they misspell your, I mean, that's, that's one thing, but what they are doing was totally different. And it all sums up to, I did a radio interview with the station in Columbus right after it happened. And I'll give you the short version, but basically he was like, you know, do you get Do you have a vendetta against Ohio state? Do you have it out for urban Meyer? And I said, no, no, I don't. He's like, well, you know, as people think you do. And I said, well, have you read, everything I've reported in the past few months. And he said, yes, I have. I said, okay, I appreciate that. Let me ask you one question. Pretend that everything I've reported, let's substitute Ohio State for Michigan. Let's substitute Jim Harbaugh for Urban Meyer. Now tell me exactly what you have a problem with what I reported. Because there was no anonymous sources. Everything was quotes. Everything was emails, text messages, photos, etc. What exactly would you have had a, pro- a problem with? And the guy sat there and you know, hemmed and hawed for a minute. And finally I said, stop. I go, you just answered my question. You don't have a problem with what I reported. You have a problem that I reported about your school and you're a fan of this school. You're a fan of this coach. That's why you're pissed off. It's not that what I reported is inaccurate because, oh, by the way, you paid a million dollars for a law, um, law firm to investigate what I reported and your coach was suspended for it. Um, so, you know, that was the biggest thing that, that Ohio state fans, even some Ohio state media were upset because I reported about Ohio state. But when I asked him point blank, tell me what you had a problem with if I was reporting the same thing about Michigan and the guy, it was cricket. So last thing for you here, and I really appreciate the time you mentioned urban Meyer, obviously that's a huge part of it out of college football this year. Uh, I guess two parts of this question. Do you think Urban Meyer is still at Ohio State if you never reported that story? And second, do you think Urban Meyer will actually come back to college football, whether that's next year or two years, three years, five years down the road? If I wouldn't have, uh, it's if I, I reported the story, I think he still is at Ohio State if he doesn't lie at Big Ten Media Days. Because I reported the story about Zach Smith's history of domestic violence, and then they fire him that night. And then the next morning, he's asked about it. And you look at the investigative report I referenced earlier, his agent, his PR director at the school, and his athletic director all told him, you're going to get asked about Zach Smith, just talk about it briefly and then move on. What did Urban do? I've never heard anything about that. Who would create a story? I don't know anything about that. That's why I did my second report, because he came out and was so defiant and said he didn't know anything. So at that point, all the information I had was like, well, wait, yeah, yes, you do know. I've got these text messages um, from the coaches' wives. Shelly had endless conversations and text messages with Courtney about this. 
Um, so, yeah, if he doesn't lie about it, he absolutely he is still the coach at Ohio State. And, yes, I do think he'll coach again next year. Uh, he's doing basically the same thing he did at Florida. He took a year off at Florida and then came back to coaching. You know, but he did say that he's done coaching and, um, you know, he's having he's happy doing TV. So, you know, we'll take him at his word that he's not going to coach again. But I, I do think you'll see him on a sideline next year um, in college football. I do think it's going to be has to be a program that can win a national championship, compete for a national title. I don't think you'll see him take over a Kansas or a North Carolina like Les Miles and Mac Brown did. So is that USC? Everyone's staring at USC. You mentioned Clay Helton earlier, uh, talking to Lane Kiffin about the hot seat. Is Urban yeah. Meyer, is he, the, is he the guy at USC? Well, he definitely would be the, the top choice, but then there's an X factor that nobody really knows about. They, they just hired a new president uh, for North Carolina, and they're going to hire a new athletic director. So is there any issues or concerns with how Urban uh, mishandled the Zach Smith situation? and how strongly USC feels about it. Um, that's an answer that only USC can answer. Um, nobody knows that answer. Uh, some schools wouldn't touch him. Other schools would. I guess it just depends on how bad you want to win and how much, how big of a deal that is to each school. Um, there's not a right or wrong answer. It's just the preference of the university and or the athletic department. So that's the unknown that nobody really knows. Um, but certainly, yeah, I think USC would be a, a place for him um, if they're fine with uh, bringing him on. And uh, I have no way of knowing, and I don't think anybody really does until they hire an athletic director on how they're thinking along those lines. Okay, that's Brett McMurphy on the High Motor Podcast. Hey, Brett, uh, thanks a lot for the time. Safe travels this week, and enjoy the rest of the week. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Baylor. Baylor is 4-0 after the Iowa State win, going up to Manhattan this week and looking for 5-0 in Week 6. And after Kansas State's loss, and Chase, this is something that we talked about on Sunday's podcast, after Kansas State's loss to Oklahoma State, right now I'm seeing K-State at minus 2. And you had predicted before the Lions came out, you thought Baylor would actually be favored. Maybe some people overly excited about the, uh, about Baylor after that win. You weren't as high on Iowa State as I was or as most people were, but you had said maybe people might overreact to that Baylor win. But right now, it's two points to Kansas State as of right now. So uh, two questions for you. Number one, how surprised are you by that, or is two such a small number you're not that surprised? And number two, are you touching this game? To answer the first question, this goes back to one of those things we talk about a lot in this podcast, which is setting a point spread is not necessarily an indication of how to accurately handicap a game, right? Most bookmakers are just trying to get even action on both sides. So when we were talking about that a couple days ago, my thought process was not necessarily Baylor is better than Kansas State or vice versa, but Baylor is coming off of this perception-changing win over Iowa State, regardless of how good or not good you think Iowa State might be. I think a lot of people stepped back after that game and went, whoa, I think Baylor's good. Uh, And Kansas State, coming off a loss in Oklahoma State, taking their first loss of the season, maybe people think they're a little bit mortal. I wouldn't have been surprised to see Baylor open as like a one or one-and-a-half point favorite. So that's the conversation we had earlier in the week. Uh, I just want to give people the context of that. Uh, In terms of the actual game, uh, I I did think either way it was going to be a number that was three or less. Uh, So so I'm not surprised to see the small number here. 
I don't have a good feel for taking a side either way because the number is minus two and because it's the Big 12 even with these two teams. Basically, you're picking a winner here. Um, so, so the number, I mean, it could come into play. It's pretty unlikely. You're pretty much picking a winner here. The, the, the bet that I like in, with this game in particular more than a side is actually the total. I'm really, really big on under 50.5, which is the number I'm looking at right now. It opened at 51.5. It's already down one full point. I think the Sharps are banging this early. I like the under. I'm probably putting the under in the column. I will probably bet a few hundred dollars on it this weekend. What If there's significant money put on this game, uh, what would that K-State line have to get to for you to be interested? If it moves a couple of points either direction, do you care? Well, if it moves up, I definitely don't care because I, I don't necessarily want to take it at, negative t- uh, at, at minus two. So I definitely don't want to take it at minus four. Uh, and, and Baylor, it, this just feels like a spot to go against Baylor because they are coming off the win and now they're going on the road, right? So it, it, it's almost like now I'm, I'm forced to buy a stock at a price where I could have gotten it way cheaper a week ago. And that, that's kind of how I'm looking at Baylor. And that's why I don't necessarily want to side in this game. It's not just that it feels like a coin flip. It's that both sides have inherent flaws. I'm going back over. I know that the Thursday, Friday night games aren't going to get as much attention with playoff baseball happening, but just going back over uh, that schedule, you know, it's it's pretty weak. Georgia Southern, South Alabama, that's on Thursday. Temple, East Carolina, also on Thursday. Temple playing well. Uh, you know, East Carolina is historically even a tough place to play, even with them being down the last few years. But then going on to Friday, unless you're really fired up on New Mexico, San Jose State, we have UCF Cincinnati. So that's a Friday night game, 7 Central uh, at Nippert Stadium. That game has lost, and I think you probably agree with me, major, major juice with that UCF loss, with that Ohio State blowout. Cincinnati, I thought Cincinnati would look a little bit better in that one. We talked about that last week, and I think the week before, too. But regardless, this is still one of the premier top two, three, or four, or five G5 games under the season, under the lights. A lot of people are going to check this one out just to see that new field. And if they are going to check it out, they're probably going to put money on that. So I'm seeing UCF right now, minus four, point total of 60. And because UCF lost, I guess the question is, how much weight are you putting into that Pittsburgh loss? We've seen throughout Pat Narduzzi's tenure, a Pittsburgh team one week completely different. And this is probably a bigger conversation. We, we talked about offline uh, a few minutes ago going into this, how college football is so much fun and that it's unpredictable, but it also makes your job a little bit harder. How much stock are you putting into how they looked against Pittsburgh with UCF at minus four? Is this a game of interest or just a stay away for you? Uh, it's definitely a game of interest. I do like a side in this game, but I'm not putting a ton of weight into the Pittsburgh game. If you go back and watch that game, it's just a super weird game. Uh, UCF goes down big early in the first half. They come out of halftime. They score like three or four touchdowns in the span of four minutes. And it's, you know, the the ending is crazy. It's just one of those weird, fluky games. Not even in the result, just in how it was played. So I'm not putting a ton of stock into that particular outcome, especially because Pitt is one of those teams, too, that's just really weird and up and down week to week. Uh, I, I do like a side in this game, and it's Cincinnati. First of all, you're getting a home dog. You're getting a home team on a weeknight, so it's already an irregular sort of game. You're already out of your normal routine of playing on Saturday. you got to travel early. I think a lot of time that does favor the home team. You're getting four points with Cincinnati. Uh, I, I, you and I talked about this actually in the summer, this particular game, and I said two months ago that I, I liked Cincinnati to win this game. And this is a big game in the American East because basically – 
whoever wins this game has an inside shot at the championship track. It's going to be hard. Now, the Americans a little deeper than I think we originally thought it would be at the, in the preseason. But still, this game carries a lot of weight, and it's definitely an inside track kind of game. I do think that Cincinnati is the right side to be on here. They're catching the four points. I think they can win outright. Uh, you, you and I talked, uh, it might have been in the podcast, it might have been before we got on here, I honestly don't remember. But you and I talked about how C- Cincinnati's lost some of, its, some of its luster just because they got smashed by Ohio State. But I think that was kind of a fluky game, and that's just what Ohio State does to other Ohio teams. They get up for that. So I, I like Cincinnati to, to cover here. I think they definitely could get the outright win. I think they're going to be really good. I think their offense is dynamic and maybe a little underrated. The defense is still good. UCF might be just a tad bit down this year. And, yeah, I think Cincinnati is the side to be on. And one more note on this game I would bring up that's pretty important, actually. 75% of the tickets are on UCF, right? So UCF is big public brand that everybody's on top of and everybody knows about. The money is a 50-flip. A 50-50 split right down the middle. So whenever that's something I love to look at. Whenever any side has 75% of the tickets, three out of every four ticket is on UCF, but the money is actually even, that's a huge indicator that Cincinnati is probably the side you want to be on. Yeah, and like we touched on here, a lot of playoff baseball going on, and because this game has lost a little bit of juice with those losses, I still think a lot of eyeballs are going to be on this game. College football fans are going to be watching it. They're going to be watching. They're probably going to be betting on it. So even though it's lost a little bit of juice, uh, still we talked about on Sunday, we want to care more about G5 games. And even though this game does not matter whatsoever in any sort of playoff race, uh, it's still going to be a wildly entertaining game there in Cincinnati on Friday night. I want to talk about a couple of Big Ten Wait, can I cut you off for one second? Please do. Uh, talking about weeknight games, there's there's one other one that I kind of like this week. I don't love it, but but I really think the number is compelling, and it's it's an undercard game that you might not be paying much attention to. But East Carolina is hosting Temple, and they're catching eleven and a half points at home. And East Carolina, I think I did what a lot of people did, which I, I watched their first couple games and was like, oh yeah, they're still. Mike Houston's a good coach. They're probably still one or two years away. They're, they're going to need a, a recruiting class or two to get in there. East Carolina quietly 3-2. and two. They just won on the road at Old Dominion, which is not a, you know, that's not a win that's going to knock your socks off. But they did win on the road. But after how good Old Dominion looked this year against Virginia and what they did last year against Virginia Tech, you still have to take that seriously, though. Yeah, so they're, they're quietly 3-2. and two. They're catching an 11.5-point you know, spread, and they're at home on a weeknight. I kind of think that the Pirates, that's a great spot to bet them. And even that other Thursday night game that I mentioned, it's not the sexiest game, Georgia Southern South Alabama, same deal there. Georgia Southern going on the road, uh, 10-point favor with with a a lower total of 46. So South Alabama at home, double-digit underdog. Um, maybe something also to keep your eye on. I'd mention a couple of Big Ten games here, one in which the team is getting completely crapped on, Michigan uh, against Iowa and the Michigan State-Ohio State. Let's talk about Michigan-Iowa right now. Michigan, a three-and-a-half-point favorite despite how bad they've looked, even though they got kind of praise for smashing a horrific Rutgers team, which I'll never understand. Over-under right now, 47 in that game. Like I said, everybody's still kind of crapping on Michigan. Those who weren't praising them for beating Rutgers, Iowa kind of getting that usual Iowa, oh hey, maybe Iowa, maybe Iowa, maybe we should look at Iowa a little bit more. What are you feeling in Michigan, uh, three and a half point favorite against Iowa this weekend? Yeah, I think you're going to start to see a trend with me this week. Uh, Iowa and Michigan, I'm not crazy about either side. 
Uh, Iowa opened with a crooked number. They were five-point favorite. That's been bet down to three and a half. So the public is all over Iowa. If you know, if you listen to this podcast regularly, if you read my column regularly, you know one of the things I hate the most are public underdogs. You know, if it was smart to bet the underdog and everybody's doing it, it's probably not that smart. So, <laughs> uh, all right. So, so since you since you don't want that game, let's go to Michigan State. No, Ohio it's State. it's not that I don't like the game. I just don't like a side. I love the under. Okay. So you know, so are you thinking that neither team is going to score more than two touchdowns? That's kind of your logic going into this game. I don't know about two touchdowns, but I do think it'll 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 be probably a more lower scoring game. I would speaking think. of complete piss poor offenses, Michigan State. So they're going to Ohio State. Buckeyes are a twenty point favorite, but the total is only forty nine. And we again we talked about this right before we hopped on here. They're kind of assuming odds makers are kind of assuming that this Michigan State offense that has struggled so much outside of that win against Northwestern. I think it's like five of their last nine. Power five or last nine FBS games have scored seven or fewer points. So obviously, odds makers aren't loving that Michigan State offense as they shouldn't be. Everybody gushing over Ohio State, and we can talk about uh, Nebraska clearly had their issues. Uh, Cincinnati, we're not still not sure if they're that good, but Ohio State has still looked good. Is that line too high, or do you actually like Ohio State at twenty? I don't think it's too high at all. I, I do think the side to be on here is Ohio State. They are absolutely murdering people. Right, So the, the problem here is Michigan State. And Michigan State's been one of the teams we've talked about the most out of any team in college football through the first month of the season. And it's because they're just so dichotic. right? I, I have no idea what to do with this team. You know, they completely lay an egg at home against Arizona State, a team that I would say most people would agree they're probably more talented than. They're more consistent of a program. Uh, they, they completely lay an egg. They barely score any points the whole game. They end up almost backing into a win but have to re-kick a field goal because they have 12 men on the field for the field goal kick and they lose. So everybody goes against Michigan State the next week. For some reason, they're laying almost 10 points on the road. Everybody's on Northwestern, including me. I, I went for it too. And Northwestern completely shits the bed and... Michigan State runs away with that game. Q last week, they almost lose at home to Indiana. They need a walk-off field goal to win that game. So it's just one of those teams right now that you have no idea who's going to show up week to week. On the one hand, you could argue, look, this is a big game. This is a more methodical offense against uh, sort of a more a more spread-based attack, a faster-paced attack, what Ryan Day is doing with Ohio State. They're scoring a lot of points. A lot of times, that could favor the D'Antonio-type team, right? Uh, but I just don't know what to do with this with this team. So my gut is lay the points, lay the 20 with Ohio State because they're a proven commodity. You know what you're getting in Michigan State. There's a chance they don't show up at all. And Ohio State covers a 20-point number by scoring three How much do you factor into it? And Michigan State is one of the few teams that has consistently competed with or beat Ohio State in the past. And I, I know you don't want to go into too much. Like this week for the, with the playoffs, a lot of talk with the Twins and the Yankees. The Twins haven't beat the Yankees in the playoffs in so long, but the last time they played was 10 years ago. None of the same guys are on the team. So how much, I guess this is going to be a general betting question, how much do you even care about that? How much do you care about the same logos going up against each other? It matters, I think, in terms of uh, established styles of play is where I pay attention to it. And I'll give you, I'll, I'll give you an example that's close to home and kind of depressing for me. Uh, a lot of people know I, I'm a West Virginia fan. I grew up in West Virginia. 
Uh, West Virginia play the Big 12. There's a round robin, so everybody plays everybody every year. West Virginia plays Oklahoma every year. They have not beaten Oklahoma since they joined the Big 12. And it's, it's not an accident. It's not some weird, fluky thing. It's because the style of defense that West Virginia has had under Dana Holgerson, where they have that 3-3-5 stack, and they're smaller up front against Oklahoma's big, super strong offensive line, they just mash West Virginia every single year. So it's not, sometimes it's just a coincidence and it's a meaningless stat, that head-to-head stat. But sometimes it matters because there's a style of play that has a distinct and repeatable advantage over the other team. You had mentioned Arizona State in the context of Michigan State, and, and I want to talk about this Cal-Oregon game with Oregon 17.5 point favorite at home one week after Cal loses to Arizona State. And you can talk about if you like that line or not, but how much of this line or how much of you wanting to touch this or not has to do with what Arizona State did up in East Lansing, what Arizona State did, how they looked so poorly against Sacramento State, but then they go up to Berkeley and look pretty decent. Yeah, it was, it was a weirder, lower-scoring game that Cal easily could have won if they had come through on third down in the red zone. But with that Cal-Oregon game, going back to it, how much does Arizona State factor into that type of conversation for that 17.5 points? Uh, a little bit, but not a ton, because Arizona State's one of those teams where I struggle to know what to do with them as well. And Cal, I feel like, even though I think it's a little funky that they lost that game, they've really showed me something through the first month of the season, right? I know what kind of team they are. They go up to Washington. They beat the Huskies. They beat an SEC team. Like, this, is, this is a strong, physical, defensive-minded team. And generally speaking, if you're going to give a team that plays like that 18 points... I mean, that's a lot of points to give a ranked team. That so does you know the Arizona State loss almost help you as a better? Since you're, you are confident in Cal, and yeah, they lost that game, does that loss almost open it up? Because hey, if they hadn't lost that game, what would this line be at right now? Maybe uh, 10, I would think 11? that it would be closer, yeah. I would think so that does it... this open up an opportunity, even though you're not thinking less of Cal? Does a loss like that, then you, can you look forward the next week and say, God, I still really like Cal. 17.5 is, is a big line. Now I have this opportunity to go get 17.5 points up in Eugene? It does to some extent because, you know, I made the stock comparison earlier. You want to buy low and sell high, right? So if you're going to buy on Cal this week, and to be clear, I'm probably not betting the Cal-Oregon game. But if you want to, the argument is there to be on the Cal side because you're getting to buy low because they're coming off of the loss. A lot of professional bettors like to take sort of like a like a an NBA or an MLB postseason approach. A lot of bettors in football like to take a zigzag approach where they like to bet on teams right after they lose or fade teams on winning streaks if the spot's right. We've talked a lot about games that you either will take, um, you don't love it, and I know you mentioned the under uh, over a couple of times. Give me some games that you actually love this week before we head out. Sure. Uh, the big one that I think that I, I like a lot is Wisconsin minus 36. And there's just a lot of things that I like about this game. Number one, the number. The number is just on the other side of 35. And hanging 36 makes me think that a book is actively trying to create action for uh, the Kent State side because they know that this is going to be a lopsided game and they want to at least collect some return on it. So that's, that's, that's not a total deciding factor for me, but whenever I see a number like minus 3.5 or minus 7.5 or minus 36 under certain circumstances, 
I'll take that as a signal from the book that they're trying to create action on the underdog side. And I think this is one of those cases. Will that move? Will that line move really quickly? Then if they start getting a lot of action on Kent State, it's almost like they want to entice you. Then as soon as enough people jump on it, it moves. Yeah, I mean that can be the case. Yeah. Uh, so the, I mentioned the number. Uh, looking at the the other games that Wisconsin has played, sort of these out of conference games, they beat Central Michigan by uh, a score sixty one to zero. They beat South Florida forty nine to zero. And at some other point, you and I are going to have to have a conversation about what is going on in in Tampa with South Florida and Charlie Strong. Let's have it right now. Who replaces him? I think he's gone. We don't know what his buyout is because of the whole foundation contract. Uh, even though it's a public university, they have it through their foundation, so we can't actually see that because it's a separate entity. Who replaces them, though? I think he's gone either this year or next year. I, I just don't there? understand how it happens so fast. I don't even I, care, though. Like Honestly, I don't have any emotional or financial investment in, in USF, so I think the conversation shifts to, which we, which we kind of talked about uh, on Sunday with Justin Fuente. You know, if, if we want to talk about buyout and what we talked about a week before with Harbaugh, I think if you want to have that conversation, my first question that I think, what is the buyout? And then two, who are you going to replace him with? I think Charlie Strong is gone either this year or next year, even though I don't know that buyout. It can't be that high. I don't know, I'm guessing it's like in a three to four million range at most. So who replaces them, though? So this is, I, I'm going to answer your question with a question which is going to infuriate you, but this is, the, I think, part of the difference between how you think about things and how I think about things. Because I think the first question that comes to my mind is, is this the last head coaching job Charlie Strong will ever have? It's a good question. What is he, 45? Let's look it up here. Because at a certain point, I feel he like can't when, be when you're trajecting downward with your head coaching jobs, you know, he was great at Louisville. Oh, he's 59. Oh, I was way off. I didn't know he was that old. Yeah, I, I didn't know he was 50. that old either. I thought he was in his late 30s when he was at Louisville, but he was he was 50 when he got the Louisville job. My God. But yeah, he well, got Louisville, and he's, uh, he, he's – He's on an upward trajectory. Well, he's and been around. I guess first job was 1983. Job. He was a defensive coordinator for a while. Yeah. Right. I mean, he's been position coach at several uh, southeast schools. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe. I don't know why you would give him a better job. I could see, like, I mean, Florida International hired Butch Jones, and, you know, they're struggling a little bit, but that worked out generally. I could see, like, a program like that. That's also a conversation I just don't care about. I don't really care how UCF got here because I don't think Charlie Strong is a guy who's going to move them back. I think it's the next guy. Maybe this is a bigger conversation that we should have on Sunday. We can actually look up some candidates. But, yeah, I, I don't know which direction you go there and, and who you would replace him with. Are we just going to start a weekly segment called Fire Somebody where we pick somebody and figure out who replaces them? We'll put somebody in the chopping block every single week starting week one. Then if they're fired, who replaces them? Yeah. Who's, your, who's your number one, number two, and number three guys? I do all my best work on the fly. So you mentioned Wisconsin Kent State. I know that before we hopped on here, we were talking about the biggest line of the week was Notre Dame forty-five versus Bowling 45. Green. Is that too high for you, Bowling Green? They actually have looked competent after firing Mike Jinks, and they've looked like a little bit better this year. But they're still a really, really horrific, probably bottom ten team, maybe bottom five team. Is forty-five enticing enough for you? No, uh, <laughs> absolutely not. Uh, this this is a stay away just because the number's too big and. and I don't. I don't even. I don't think I've ever laid a number that big. I've laid pretty close. I've laid some forty twos and forty threes. I don't think I've ever laid forty five, and I, I don't even think this. Even if I was inclined to, I don't think this is the spot to do it in, because I'm just thinking about game flow and Notre Dame playing Bowling Green the week after the big UVA game. They're going to get up big early and coast. And, Willie Taggart's going to replace Charlie Strong. There you go. Yeah, I mean that could happen. Yeah. <laughs> 
please. It just, it just came to me. No, I, I yeah. think that I think take it a couple another years. Uh, sorry for interrupting you. Was your point done there? Yeah. No, we're good. Great. So I'll be back on Sunday. Chase will be back on Sunday, filling in as a co-host for another week. Uh, maybe we'll talk about who replaces Charlie Strong. I think he's gone. Chase, do you think he's gone after this year? Um, if they uh, we need to know he, a buyout, I think that's the big question. I don't know USF's financial situation. Maybe we have to have to look that up before we come in on Sunday. They they, they got to win a couple games, right? Because if he, I mean, they could legitimately go like ten, two and ten. I mean, they, they could which after like last year, I think they lost what their last six last year. So he might not he, even make it to the. If end you of the put year. in last year, I mean, he he very well could lose. 14 of his last 18 games, 15, 16 of his last 18 games, uh, something like that. Anyways, we'll be back on Sunday. We'll put a bow on week six, look ahead to week seven. Uh, Until then, check out past episodes and all episodes of the High Motor Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Stitcher, everywhere else on Twitter, at High Motor Pod. Chase is at Chase A. Kitty. We did not get to his 2K parlay today. If you want that, if you're curious about the 2K parlay, the $5 bet to win more than 2000 Chase is on Twitter, at Chase A. Kitty. Message him, tweet at him. Uh, he will help you out with that. I am Andrew Doughty, and this is College Football on the High Motor Podcast. Oh,